Today, Greg and I are talking to the author David Crow. David wrote the award-winning memoir, The Pale Face Lie. And listen, it's, it's a brutal story about family, survival, and the healing power of forgiveness. Greg found this book in the bookstore, loved it, shared it with me, and we immediately knew we had to talk to David. He was so nice to come on our show. So here's the interview in its entirety. We hope you enjoyed as much as we did. Give us uh, a synopsis. Tell us a little bit about what uh, The Pale Face Lie is about. Yes, and thank you both for having me on. Um, the elevator speech for my book is, I'm born nine months after my dad gets out of San Quentin Penitentiary for a crime that easily could have gotten him the death penalty. <clears throat> he has uh-huh. two goals. To He's got a, at this point, my mother had um, given birth to a, a girl who was born while he was in prison. And he needs to do two things. He needs to go someplace where you can lie about being a violent felon because people do not take kindly to that then or now. And he needed to go to a place where his accomplice wouldn't find him. He wasn't afraid of his accomplice, but he was afraid of an ambush, right? My dad Mm -hmm. thought he was the strongest guy in the world. He could have whipped King Kong with one hand behind his back. But he's worried about an ambush. So he went to the Navajo Indian Reservation, faked all these great, references, which they, you know, in the 50s and 60s, uh, before the Navajo people had a chance to go to college and get the advanced education, uh, if you showed up on a reservation and you didn't kill somebody that day and you could actually drive a truck and use a shovel, you got promoted. Mm. Wow. Right? He could be a big man uh, there. And so he went to work for El Paso Natural Gas Company and their compound was inside the reservation. And he was a smart guy. And he did well. Uh, no one knew about his past, and his accomplice didn't have the slightest idea how to. So that's how it begins. But where the book really begins, okay, that's my dad, is mm-hmm. we're out in. Uh, so where we lived was what we call frozen tundra. Uh, as you know, Arizona's got low way down where Phoenix and Tucson is. But I lived up around 7,000 feet and very mm-hmm. thin air, very cold. We got a lot of snow in the winter. You know, that part of the reservation still gets a lot of gets a lot of snow. So dad would drive out in our Rambler in the middle of nowhere uh, outside our compound and slam on the brakes and spin the car endlessly around. I would bounce all over the place. And I was afraid to be afraid because he hit me and told me what a little wimp I was. Um, Mm. And we would have talks. But the first talk that we had that I remembered is we have to get rid of your mother. If you grow up like her, you'll be crazy just like her. She's got to go. And all at once, you're like, oh, my God. And it begins with that for me. And it never ends until the end of the book. He's in my life. He's got control of my life. People who read the book almost say, why didn't you break away sooner? I can honestly tell you, if you grew up like I did, you probably are lucky you're not in San Quentin right now listening to this podcast in Cell Block E, right? So um, that's how it started. And, it, you know, it started with a, that wild ride and it just kept going. And event after event, I, our life never slowed down. There were lots of days where the only goal was 
get through that day. Mm. Yeah, that, that resonated with me, you know, and, and you and I have corresponded and talked about how much um, it mirrored my own childhood experience, but to again, to a much lesser extent. But what it made me think about with my own father was the fact, and I tell people about him now, he's passed, um, but he was a very charming guy. You know, people liked my father. And because um, as a kid, I, I couldn't um, really distinguish between when people were liking my father. It, it kind of reinforced his behavior. Although I never really consciously thought to myself, he's behaving in a very antisocial way towards me and he behaves differently in public and to other people. Mm -hmm. I didn't make that distinction as a kid. You know, so talk to me about like, when did you realize at what age, even hearing that, that, that terrible news he dropped on you about wanting to get rid of your mom, like, did it, it must have seemed normal to you at a certain level, right? Yeah, you've, you've hit a deep note, Greg. My dad can be very charming. He had a very high IQ. Um, he claims, and I don't doubt it, that uh, the warden in San Quentin and chief psychiatrist said that he tested higher than anybody they've had. Of course, that's not a high bar. You know, you're the smartest man in San Quentin. <laughs> it's, it's not like uh, Harvard sending you a letter to me. Uh, Greg, Tim, David, don't apply anywhere else. You know, we're going to name a building after you. But nevertheless, Dad was very smart, very charming. And uh, he, he could spend BS, bullshit, better than any human I have ever met, then or now. And I've been in lobbying for 40-odd years, and I meet them all. <laughs> Every once in a while, Klein will say, uh, what, what background did you have for lobbying? I say, living till 10, where he didn't kill me. Um, so mm -hmm. Dad was very charming. And, you know, people, I, some of it was they were afraid of him because he was a physically... <clears throat> Uh, very much of an aggressive guy, and he was built like an NFL linebacker. So I had different pieces of where I recognized, but I think I can give you a snippet where I really saw my dad for what he was. You know, so I'm 10 years old, 10 or 11, and we're in the family car because it was the only good radio that we had. <laughs> so we were sitting in the garage and we're listening to a prize fight again from Amo Griffith and Kitty the. Benny the Kid Barrett. So this is a world middleweight boxing championship, and it was their third fight. And Dad loved boxing. <clears throat> Just loved, I mean, that, that's what he lived for. So apparently, Emil Griffith made a comment to Benny Perrett, or, or Benny Perrett, forgive me, made a comment about Griffith saying, you know, you might be gay, and, you know, mm -hmm. slapped him on the rear. And so I'm a 10, I'm like, okay, these are, this is how you taunt guys. It's yeah, it's an insult, but, you know, they trash talk all the time. <clears throat> and, I, and I didn't think much of it. So during the fight, uh, as the fight turns out, uh, Griffith, at the end of the fight, it was a close fight, is hitting Perrette so hard in the 15th round that his arms can no longer raise to defend himself. And anybody when he research this can, can find mm -hmm. this out. And so what he would do is he kept hitting him into the rope and bouncing him back, and he couldn't fall down. Norman Mailer, who was one of the announcers we listened on radio, said he'd never seen one man hit another man as hard and as many times. Of course, any normal ref would have stopped the fight, but there mm -hmm. had been two fairly contested fights, and they, by God, they were just going to do this. 
So the story I want to tell is dad was so thrilled that Griffith killed Brett. What happened is Brett fell face down at the end of the fight in a coma and never woke up. Figured, you know, he knew how hard he was being hit. And he's screaming, kill, kill, kill that son of a bitch. Kill him. He has it coming. You don't ever violate the code. You never talk about a man's sexuality or anything. And I'm, I'm in horror. It's like, wait a minute. This is a boxing match. These are two trash talkers. This is what they do. And you are so excited he's being killed. And at the end of the match, he turned to me and he said, son, you've just learned an important lesson about justice. Justice is about no one crosses your path. And if they do, and you take them out. And killing is the right thing to do. It's part of the code. Never let a man cross you in a way. And he went into a story about himself in the fish tank. So in a maximum security penitentiary, for those of you who have not had the chance to enjoy this, the first 30 days you're in the pen, you're separated into violent or whether you're a multiple theft cheater. And they're really two very different kinds of criminals in maximum security prison. And they're different, right? They're, they're really different. So dad obviously got put into the, the violent part because he tried to beat a man to death. And he was just sad that the man didn't die. <clears throat> Couldn't believe it because he thought he'd stop breathing. So dad's let out into the main yard immediately. And he's telling me this story. I'm 10. And a guy comes up and insults him. It's a lifer con. So back in the day, a lifer con's a guy under 40, very healthy, probably very strong. He's never getting out. So he oh, wants yeah. to control drugs, sex, favors. Those are the guys that run the prison. The wardens don't run it. <clears throat> the guards don't run it. Lifer con run it. This lifer con walks up and insults him. And he hits him as hard as he can, gets him on the ground. And is trying to kill him, right? The second he's let into the yard, you've got guards with high-powered rifles up on the catwalk. But as Dad explained it, the cons hate each other, but they hate the guards worse. So all of the cons surrounded my dad. One gave him a handkerchief, cleaned the blood off of his hand, and they broke into smaller groups and walked him where guards couldn't figure out who he was. <clears throat> and I said to my dad, weren't you afraid you'd be killed? Here you are. They tell you, don't, don't take the bait, don't be violent, don't get in fights. And you immediately get into this killer fight with this guy. And he said, yeah, my only regret is if I had three more seconds, I would have actually beat his brains out. And I said, dad, did, did you worry you're going to get killed? He said, son, there's more important things than living. It's not letting a man violate. Okay, you're a different kind of guy. This is the kind of father-son thing that, you know. This isn't like his Mickey Mantle better than Willie Mays. Right. Yeah. So that that was who dad was private. But he might run into your dad. Oh, you're the greatest man in the world. Tell a bunch of stories. Hug him. You know, and, and just spin all kinds of stuff. And you think the nicest man you ever met. Yeah, I remember you talking about um, at a certain point, your dad had a friend. And, you know, and he was in, I think, in his new relationship and, and, and he, you guys would go places and, uh, and it, it, was it a feeling of somewhat normalcy or was, were you always having to be hyper vigilant for, you know, what may come that you weren't prepared for? You had to be hyper vigilant. Um, dad picked friends he could control <coughs> and guys like him do that. So the one friend he had 
um, he met on the reservation one of the few Anglos, right? There weren't many Anglos in those days, very few. <clears throat> there are probably not many now, but there just weren't many. And so um, he went to town, Gallup, New Mexico, the closest border town, very rough town, then and now. <clears throat> and um, he had his two kids and the three Crow kids. My older sister was enough older she got out of this. So he took us to Gallup. And he dropped us off at a movie theater with like 50 cents. But I could, I was always the one who listened. So these guys are talking about sex and trying to find women and what hotels they could find them and <clears throat> how much they could drink. And, you know, they're talking like sailors on shore leave, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing but bad language and nothing but, you know, how, how many times we're going to get it, stuff like that. And so he drops us off at this movie theater. And it's really cold. It's like a January day. And he doesn't come back for 12 hours. We watch every movie twice. They kick us out. We're on the street. We're freezing. There's drunks walking by. That's all Gallup had then at night. (laughs) And eventually he shows up with this guy, right? His best friend, Vance. And we get in the car and we're furious because we've sat in front of that theater for like from 930 till like one in the morning, just freezing. And dad's got his eyes are bugged out. Like he had the blood vessel that pulsed and the eyes are bugged out like a Volkswagen. And you knew then if he got to that point, nothing stopped. He's going to kill or be killed, as he called it. <clears throat> so he gets Vance in the car. And I look at Vance. He's bloody. Uh, he's had somebody has really worked Vance over, right? And uh, he's got teeth missing and he's whimpering and you gash on him. So dad says, we're going to go find the carlet in Navajos that did this man. We're going to kick their ass. We're going to go. Right. So we start driving around looking for a group of drunk Navajos at night in a pickup truck. And without being disrespectful to anybody, every vehicle on the road was a drunk group of Navajos. You know, one o'clock in the morning on the reservation. So he's looking. He just wants to kill somebody. And Vance, to his somewhat credit, uh, every time Dad said, "Is that them?" He pulled the truck. Vance kind of tried to open his eye. Oh no, that's not them. That's not them. And so we drive all the way back to drop Vance off. And it's clear Dad wanted to kill the people for Vance. Now, I have no idea how they got separated, but those were Dad's friends, right? Uh, the other people he courted, people he reported to, and he was just an obsequious you know, a kisser to them. Oh, this is the smartest man in the world. You won't believe how smart he is. Oh my God, I write down every thought. And those were dad's two kind of friends. Greg, I have a, a question. As we're talking about your dad, and obviously he's he's such a towering figure in this book. And and again, I think, you know, all three of us being sons, we we understand that, you know, our father is just completely outsized, right? You're talking about learning about manhood. And I have to confess, like there were times that that the way you talked about him, I could feel the charm and actually felt mm-hmm. being pulled in. And in the middle of the book, you you start to develop a, a lot more complexity with with him. Um, and and I just want to read just two quotes and have you talk about them because I think they really struck me. And it, we had already known about his violence and his code of justice and just how he sees the world, and we know that he's not always truthful, uh, to say the least. But um, you said, Dad had, 
Dad always had more compassion for animals than he did for humans. I was almost jealous of that poor coyote that you saw. There was a dead coyote on the road. Why wouldn't he show the same kindness towards his four children and his mom? And then you go on to say, um, you need to understand the world around you, boy. Study science and math. Learn the importance of Avogadro's number and pi and the Pythagorean theorem, which almost sounds a little like what you would think a well-adjusted dad would be telling his son. But then you go on, uh, you say, I followed, astounded he was so smart. Do you recognize that? But he didn't act like other smart people. He loved violence as much as he loved knowledge, as if they went hand in hand. And to me, I started to, to just fully realize how dangerous of a person he was. Even though I'd, you know, that combination of high intelligence, charm, and this connection between knowledge and violence. I, and I don't know if you, you could maybe expand on that a little more in terms of how that kind of mixed through. I knew that being dad's son was a life sentence, right? Mom was out of the way and could never be a part of our life just for her mental illness. Mm-hmm. And so dad was my life. And right. so I understood him. That both scared me and excited me. I got to a point where I knew what he was thinking in terms of where we were headed. I could manipulate him unless he became uh, insanely furious and then nothing influenced him. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I could get him into conversation, right? I was like you all read a lot. I was a lot smarter than people thought I was. And I was curious about the world, curious about everything. And dad Mm -hmm. could talk about anything, right? Here's a guy that picked cotton, never really got to go to school, but he read all the English classes. He read physics. He read math. He read engineering. He would, we would quote the rhyme of the ancient mariner back and forth to one another. What did that really mean? What was that eternal sentence that the ancient mariner suffered? Was it his condition on earth? Was it how he saw mankind? Hey, Dad could talk about this stuff. Mm. So on the very day you're talking about Three incredible things happened that day, very much a synopsis of being dad's oldest son. So one, we see this coyote trap. And the Navajos trap coyote because they killed their sheep. And they also think of them as the devil. The coyotes are not, they're not loved by Indians on the reservation at all. But dad thought it was wrong to trap. All they're doing is what their instincts thought. So we go out, dad always carried water and jerky. And he went out found this trap coyote and he was so strong he, he with his left hand he pulled that trap off he had his right hand around uh, a towel around the mouth of the coyote knowing the coyote mm-hmm. going to bite because he's hurt mm-hmm. and uh, he would free the coyote put the water in jerky and quietly walk away and he would give you the lecture these animals don't deserve to be treated wait this is wrong and then he stopped. It's a 100-degree day, and by God, you're in the middle of nowhere, right? These reservation towns are tiny, and you're like 50 miles from either one of them, right? You're just in the middle of nowhere. And he said, look around you. Of course, I'm seeing waves of heat, rocks, and, you know, like around what? And he said, five million years ago, this is an ocean. 75 million years ago, we're here. And he walks you through geologic time. And then he turns and says something about Avogadro's number, which you should never forget, and why you should understand the English classics, because they taught you 
about life. Read the Bible as literature, not as religion. Read history, understand it. And then he'd grab me by the shirt and say, boy, you don't understand all this. You're no different than that coyote. Listen, when I ask you a question, answer it. If I give you something to read, read it. Understand it. This is life. So we get in the car, and of course, you just had, and we're driving the last piece home to our hometown of Port Defiant. <clears throat> and to make a long story short, we, he's the safety officer, which means if there's any kind of accident on the reservation with the government <clears throat> vehicle, he has to investigate it. Well, he pulls up, and we see this truck that looks like an accordion smashed into a big rock. We call it the haystack. And I look up, and I think it's an optical illusion because of the sun and the windshield. And I see a body hanging through the what was the windshield over steering wheel, and I don't see a head. Right? And, I'm like, and he said, don't get out. <coughs> I'm, I'm a kid. I get out. Well, there's a head on the ground of an Indian man. With a long braid and he decapitated. So I start throwing up, right? I mean, I just can't believe this. I'm puking and oh my God. And he said, Oh, you're such a wimp. You're such a little coward. That's why I didn't want you to get out. Such a baby. And so he picks up the head, puts it in the front seat of this smashed up truck, and begins a brand new explanation. He said, The Navajo Inn is about a half mile. It's you can't drink on a reservation, and if you're an Indian, you can't drink in the state of Arizona. So this is on the Arizona New Mexico border, not on the reservation, not in Arizona, but every Navajo within 100 miles can get there. So I mean, they're drunks constantly lying around; the place never stops. And if they're dead, frozen, we call them popsicles. You saw two or three every time mm-hmm. they went by. So Dad yeah. steps back. He says, "You see that Navajo in?" He said, that's government-sanctioned murder. He said, can't drink on the reservation, but a half mile away you can drink until you can't see. And he said, Arizona doesn't pretend that you're not a citizen as an Indian yet. You can't really vote and do all those things. But in Arizona, in New Mexico, we pretend we can. And, of course, Dad and I used to steal tools, and, and I was just like, he said, let me explain life to you. We come to North America and steal everything from the Indians. We put them on this reservation, and I'm stealing back what the white man gave them. Everybody's a murderer. Everybody's a thief. They're all criminals. All we're doing is getting our own peace. There is no justice. There is no God. There is no love. There's the code, and there's me. you got to look after your own self, and that's all there really is to life. This is a guy that just explained to you all the English classics, uh, 75 million years of evolution, of, of geographic evolution, anthropology, and could sit down with any intellectual you can think of, but would be the toughest guy in San Quentin within seconds. You, you know, as you're describing that, um, and I'm trying to put myself into a 10-year-old's mind frame because, you know, I had a charming but antisocial father in many ways too. But to have a father who is obviously so intellectual, and, and as you're describing his view on animals and, you know, and his view on, um, on voters' rights and things like that, you know, you, you could ascribe uh, like a progressive mindset almost in certain areas. 
And I can only imagine, though, when you're hearing things that to most humans make intuitive sense, yeah, justice, treat animals well, um, that it would almost make his control of you even more effective, you know, because I would question myself like, hey, you know, this guy has so many progressive good thoughts, but he, he's lecturing me. And so there, it must be me. It's not him, you know. What's interesting about dad, too, is you, you've hit it on the head is he could see every hypocrisy in the world. He could see, like he used to tell me um, when we would have time for stories that didn't make the book, he, there was a guy that was accused of rape. And he was a guy that, uh, it, this is in Los Angeles, big, strong, good-looking guy, immigrated here from Australia. And he was like a construction worker handyman, and he did some landscape. <clears throat> And so this very wealthy woman had him, he was basically uh, having an affair with her. And um, at some point, the husband popped home <coughs> unexpected, and she jumped up and said, rape, rape, got to arrest mm. this man. And so they get to trial, <coughs> and the judge says, you've raped this woman, and you've come into her house and brutally raped her. And the guy said, We've been having sex for like two years. <clears throat> and the guy said, well, you're a liar. And he said, well, there's a mole underneath her right breast. She's got a birthmark on her cheek. She's got a slight cut inside her thigh when she was a kid uh, where she got caught on barbed wire. Uh, her middle name is uh, Elaine. Her mother died of cancer at 50. She's one of four children, clearly. This guy didn't come in and just because he was dead on on everything, but he didn't have a lawyer, wasn't well educated. The guy who charged him, the husband, <coughs> was well educated, had a lot of money. This guy's serving life for rape. And he would tell me this. And he'd say, you get black prisoners in there. They don't speak great English. So to hell with them. You know, you're going to bury this guy. And he said, there is no less just thing than justice in a prison and justice in the criminal uh, judicial system. In that sense, every liberal in America would go right on. You're dead on. You know, the, the number of black yeah. men that are in prison because of drugs, where if you're white, you, you would have gotten a fine or maybe you go to rehab for six months. <clears throat> Instead, you're going to prison for 20, 30 years, right? So he understood this. Uh, but then the other side, the diabolical side, was he was so smart that the uh, chief psychiatrist, a guy named Dr. Yarkin, and I've looked all this up, right? Uh, Dad was in St. Quentin during a famous time. He had a famous ward named Quentin Duffy. He had a very famous prison psychiatrist. It was in time of reform, late 40s, <coughs> early 50s. And he could talk to these psych. He convinced the prison psychiatrist that he'd been praying. And what the prison psychiatrist thought was, you're really bright, you're young, and when you get out of prison, you've got transferable skills. You're a smart guy. <clears throat> you're going to be fine. And you're also married with a kid. And he, Dad said the big prejudice was most prisoners aren't that bright. They're generally not well-educated. They've generally had a horrible background, <clears throat> right? Uh, mm -hmm. Even when I went and talked to the warden, he said three out of four of these guys, the kid's in there with their dad, right? These things run in cycles. But dad was smart enough to convince mm. the psychiatrist to give him the primo job, which was inside 
the hospital where they did autopsies and diets for the prisoners. He got the job everybody wants. And he became a confidant of the psychiatrist, the warden, and he talked his way out early. And I said, Dad, what, what do you make of all that? And he said, there's nothing on this earth dumber than a well-educated liberal. They want to believe anything you tell them. <coughs> and he would laugh. <coughs> he made fun of these guys. Yeah. And he used to say, son, I'm so proud of you. You could talk yourself out of, Saint, out of your way out of St. Quentin. It's the last sentence in the book. Faster than I could. Isn't that funny? It's like, I, I have no idea. One, I don't want to be in that place. And two, I don't think anybody could be us the way you can. But yeah, he was a very paradoxical guy. Um, when it came to how he was treated, the chip on his shoulder, what he thought the world had cheated him out of, he was just as brutish as a, uh, you know, somebody from the Middle Ages. <clears throat> you get a club, you've got food and a woman, I want it, bam, I hit you over the head, I take your food and your woman, that's justice. Then the other part was an incredible understanding of society and its ills. Yeah. And Trump. In, in, David, you mentioned you're the oldest son. You know, I'm, uh, I'm the youngest of six. I have three older brothers and two older sisters. And I know that um, the focus of my dad's most intense interaction was my oldest brother. And he, he wasn't the oldest. He was the second oldest. You know, and, and as I was reading your, your memoir, I was thinking about my brother. And, and thinking about times when the police would come to our house because there was disturbance, one of my sisters invariably would call the police and how they would isolate my oldest brother. Because back in those days, they didn't want to hear from my mom and they didn't want to hear from my sisters. They went to they, who they thought was like the second man of the family. And, and just a look would intimidate my brother into, into silence, you know. And as I was reading about you, I was thinking about him and... Um, and I read about, and I, there was many funny stories about your love of pranks and your love of running and just running into the desert. And all I could think about was, it made me feel sad for my brother because I thought, you know, he must have felt so alone in being in that position and, you know, that physical exertion or that, that uh, gratification of a joke well played was, was your coping mechanism. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so... <clears throat> My older sister got abused in a different way. She tried to commit suicide, right? Mm, I remember that all. My younger brother, who I love to death and is the greatest guy in the world, I want to really underline <clears> this, <throat> uh, he didn't keep secret. Like, if you went to him and said, this is the biggest secret on earth no one could know, <laughs> he'd walk out and talk to the very first person he saw. <laughs> right? So when we that. did really destructive stuff, <laughs> I had to say, what you don't understand is I will kill you if I ever hear a word of this. And you had to mm. remind him that every five minutes. <coughs> Dad figured this out very early. You couldn't trust him. Because he didn't, he's just innocent. He didn't see any reason why you couldn't tell everybody everything. I was the reservoir of all secrets. I was the keeper of his mood. I was the keeper of his head. And so it was a great burden. Because what you wanted to do, and we could, there's a thousand stories we could tell about trying to catch him just before he did something incredibly stupid. Um, your, your job was to try to stop that. But when confronted, like a policeman coming, you know this and I know this, a very explosive father. And they, they talk about this in prison psychiatry. 
<clears throat> if you confront a really bright person, say you know, maybe you hit your wife or you did something really awful, and they're really bright, they start feeling guilty and terrible, and uh, you 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 really get to them. If you say that to a violent man, the second you leave, he'll kill that wife. <clears throat> right? Mm. What you've done is anger him. You poke the bear, and Dad was the guy. He was that guy. So if anybody ever approached you, what did your father just do? Oh, he didn't mean it. The other guy started it. Everything's fine. Um, But if a policeman or somebody really confronted him, he was going to get mad. You try to be the buffer. Um, And it was a huge burden. If anything escalated, that would be an extremely bad incident. So from your brother's perspective, I think I can honestly say his job was not to escalate that. Forget the police. They're going to leave. You're going to be the one stuck with it. And in fact, in a, a Zoom book club thing the other night, they said, well, do you ever wish you'd been caught by the detention people, or the cops, and everything that you would have learned? The only police in my world was my dad. Warden, he was the guard. He was the prison owner. Uh, it didn't matter what happened to you anywhere else. But if he got you alone and and he thought you did the wrong thing, the wrong thing is to tell on him. Um, he'd beat you within an inch of your life. And you did anything to stop that. And there were days I could, most days I couldn't. As I say in the book, there's no downside to lying because uh, basically if he got mad at you, he'd beat you till he felt like stop. If he thought you were really clever and you did something terrible, but you didn't get caught, you two would laugh all night. Like the, the mm-hmm. Elephant Hill incident where I wrecked two cars with a big hydraulic tire. <laughs> the only reason I told him that story uh, the year he died, <clears throat> he didn't know that. And I said, what would your reaction have been? He said, well, if you didn't get caught, I think it's hilarious. I think it's the funniest thing ever. If you got caught, mm-hmm. I would have beat the crap out of you because I would have had to pay for the car. <clears throat> I said, believe it or not, I knew that at 10. And that's why you're hearing the story after your third stroke, I mean, because I know, I know you, I knew you. Um, I know everything you're going to do when you do it. And I know that when you started beating us, it had nothing to do with what we did wrong. It was, were you embarrassed and how angry are you at the world today? And the buckle end of your belt. And I happen to be the only outlet for you. And that's who he was. It's, it's amazing. As I was reading uh, the memoir, I, I, I started to feel what I could only describe as some sympathy for your father because I saw my own father in it. And, and I thought, you know, it took me a long time to make peace with my with my dad. And I never made it directly with him. I made it internally. I, I made peace with him. Um, but, you know, as I was reading the book, you know, that was your worldview and your mom um she was a part of that worldview. She she was aligned with what he believed and he acted, and it sounds like your siblings were too. Same for me. But then at a certain point, I started to examine that worldview. And, and as I was reading your memoir, the things that stuck out to me that, that may have been significant were the people that you encountered in, in the different places you've lived. I, I, th- I think about the the woman who lived in your neighborhood, who showed you great kindness, and the family that you became close to, and even the gentleman who would send, sell you and your brother fireworks. Ray so Pino. Have, yeah, so you'd have some fun. <laughs> so how, how did those people in your life begin to alter maybe the way you saw your father 
or, or you know, your life circumstance? So in my book, I cite seven angels. And uh, mm-hmm. Evelyn was a full-blooded Navajo that met us at a mm-hmm. terrible point. We lived on part of the reservation that Anglos are not allowed to live in. <clears throat> Yet packs of feral dogs were diseased, Navajo kids that didn't want you there. And you get four or five beating you up every day and back and forth to school. <clears throat> we didn't know if our mom was dead or alive. And this 80-year-old woman would walk mm-hmm. over every day. And she's the first person I experienced unconditional love from. <clears throat> and I would tell her what was going on in my life and how sad I was. And she'd start our homework and she'd start dinner. Like Dad always had canned food lying around. <clears throat> you weren't going to starve. You just weren't going to eat well. But you weren't going to starve. So he was still off at work. So Evelyn would tell me stories. So at 80 years old, she remembered her four-year-old grandmother walked back from the Navajo Long Walk, the Holocaust that slaughtered all but under just less than 8,000, where they were marched 300 miles to Fort Sumner in prison. And Kit Carson and the Calvary would kill. If you're old, weak, infirm, or pregnant, you got behind, they just put a bullet in your head and kept going. Her four-year-old grandmother survived the, the, the four years there and back, and of course became her grandmother. And she told me that her grandmother found a way to forgive what the Calvary had done, what the white man had done. And she taught me words like hazoni, which is harmony, ajuba, which is grace. And she started getting inside my head. I'm like, you should be the most bitter, angry, hateful person on earth. And you're the kindest, gentlest person. And you don't know if I'm white or Indian or you don't care. I'm a kid that's in your path. And I think of Evelyn Luna every day of my life. I loved her more than anything. One of my huge, huge regrets in life. When I figured out all this stuff, my first couple of angels are Navajo, I got back too late to thank them. They were dead. And one of my third angels, who was the toughest guy on the reservation, right? And he somehow liked me, which is a miracle. But he, he, he um, he was a boxing champion. He was the one guy even all the Navajo kids were afraid of, which is saying something. Um, He was killed in a gang fight the year I came back to thank him for what he did for me on the very street that that I grew up on. And so, but these people had big impact. So I had Evelyn. The next guy was a code talker, Navajo code talker Mm -hmm. in World War II, very famous. All of your listeners should check into that. Uh, a tough Marine, guys that carried all the toughest uh, codes and it kept war in the war against Japan. None of their codes were ever broken and we broke every one, probably shortened World War II by a, at least a year. And this guy was really tough love. He had, one, he had nine kids and his second oldest was my best friend, still a very close friend, a guy named Richard Coons. And um, he, he would give me tough love when I would pull on my prank stuff, which I did constantly. I mean, I did everything you could do. We used to have wrestling matches in the little Window Rock Civic Center, and they were the cheesy, really great stuff, you know. And I threw a cherry bomb in the middle of the break. <laughs> Mr. Coots saw me, right? So um, I'm running as hard as I can, and I'm diving into the bathroom, hoping no one would find me <clears throat> because they had to close the match for a while. And uh, like two or three days later, he said, I know what you did. If I ever see you doing that again, you're not going to do 4-H. You're not coming to my house. 
you're not playing baseball with me, my mm. kids. You're not welcome anymore. And I said, well, it was a great shot. I mean, Jesus, <laughs> the, the crowd loved it. Stop the match. <laughs> this is the stuff of legend. <laughs> and he said, not in my house. Right? And I wow. said, like, I'm the funniest guy in the world. No, you're not. I mean, he'd just look at you. Right? And so these were, I understood right from wrong there. <clears throat> my third angel was when we moved east, uh, where I had a terrible time adjusting. I was in an all-white school, very upper-class school, right? I'm on a reservation. I'm five years behind school. I'm probably 10 years behind socially. <clears throat> I just felt invisible and horrible. You know, I felt like the biggest hillbilly in the world standing in Beverly Hills or something. And my, black, my, my coach was an African-American. And he would tell me right from wrong. He would get really mad at me. And he'd say, I love you. And I care about you, but you're going to not disappoint me. <clears throat> and there were lots of examples. I was actually in uh, Washington area the night uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. That very day, our all-white school went across to the District of Columbia and ran crack against an all-black school. I never, <clears throat> I think I'd met one African-American person my whole life. I knew my team was scared. I knew they were nervous. There was all kinds of trash talk. The crazy thing is they had a white coach, an all-black team. We had a white team, all kind of black coach. It was weird. Mm -hmm. So during the event, the, the meet, we're hitting each other, pushing, and all kinds of stuff that you know, mostly track guys don't do. This is football stuff, right? <laughs> and uh, somebody stole a pair of one of our sprinter's shoes. And we, one of our guys cussed at him. Meet ended in kind of a fight. <clears throat> he got us all on the bus. And he said, black, white makes no difference. You're responsible for your property. You're responsible for your behavior. You're better men than take insults. <clears throat> I, I raised you better than this. I'm disappointed in you. I'm very upset with you. Get off the bus and apologize. We're like, we're not getting off the bus and apologize. Have a fun time walking home. <clears throat> we got off. We apologized. We got big in that, back in that bus. And he delivered like a 30-minute sermon on right, wrong, how you behave, and what the world should be like. And I never forgot a word of it to this day. <clears throat> In fact, he sells a lot of my books. Chauncey Ford, I love you. No one taught me more about right, wrong than you. On that very night, when Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated, my dad hid in D.C. with the looters and rioters stole a stereo and some radios and brought them home after midnight <clears throat> and told me that he was just sticking it to the man. Two very different lessons from that. Yeah, April wow. 4th, 1968 will stand out in my head forever. And these two examples happened four hours apart. Yeah. It, it must have been so confusing because, you know, you mentioned that your dad was the ultimate authority. My dad was too. You know, I didn't get into a lot of trouble as a young man, but I got into a little, a few minor scrapes. And invariably, as the, as the, the, the thought of, of getting caught doing something that I shouldn't entered my head, I was never worried about any consequence except my father. If there were police involved, I wasn't worried about what it was going to do to my future, uh, what would happen to me. It was always what my, my father would do. And, and like your dad, like uh, I can recall my, one of my brothers uh, wrecking his car because he'd been drinking. He was under 21 
into the neighbor's retaining wall and coming home and telling my dad in the middle of the night. And of course, my dad sprung to action, called a friend with a tow truck and, and removed the car before the neighbor was any wiser. You know, um, my two rules growing up were literally don't knock any broads up. That was my dad's expression. And <laughs> don't get arrested, you know. And so when I started to encounter people like your coach or your the, the, the neighbor that you had who had kind of a different value system, it was confusing for me. And it took me a long time to learn when it was appropriate to apologize. Me too. And uh, as you both know from the book, there's a part called Query Man, which is, uh, I get more funny compliments about that story. So uh, here we are living in Kensington, Maryland, and um, it's a Saturday morning. And my sister, who's five years younger than me, she has this little lemonade stand. And uh, the neighborhood boy is probably about 11 or 12. At this point, I'm 13, I think. He comes over and knocks her stand over. Uh, pours out all her lemonade, throws her bike into the creek, and she tries to stop him, and his hand hits her. So Dad takes my brother and I, and we walk across the street. Query man's up. This is a Saturday. Query man's in a coat and tie. You know, he looks like Mr. Wilson on Dennis the Menace, and he's a lawyer. And so Dad knocks on the door, and he says, you know, damn you, you know what your kid did to my kid, and what are you going to do about it? And the man looks at him and he said, sir, let me query my son. Closes the door in dad's face. <clears throat> well, he's twitching like he's been hit with a thousand volts of electricity, right? You've, you've got him so mad. So five minutes goes by and the man comes out and says, sir, I'm sorry for your trouble. I queried my son. He may have bumped over a cup of lemonade, but boys will be boys. You're mistaken. Closes the door in his face. <clears throat> So to make a long story short, my dad gave my brother and I full permission to do anything we wanted. Well, we destroyed this car. We, we ordered everything you can order. It, it almost seemed unreal, David, when I was reading it. Like you, you just took every single thing you could do to a neighbor's house and you put it into play. Yeah, you and your brother. We, you know, I, my voice at that point sounded more like a woman on the phone. And it, these were the days no one questioned anything. It I called Sears. I need a washer and dryer. My mom took it out of the house. We called Heckinger's, which was the Home Depot of his day. I need a load of four by fours. Two by- We're building a deck for my mom. She just got out of the hospital. We called 12 florists. We called like 10 pizza shops. We started calling cabs because they were going to Europe. And this just never stopped, right? And then it gets dark. And my brother and I take what I call the pro triple play. Of course, we didn't have cherry bombs. We had uh, water balloons and eggs. And we went over to the, and we got bags of dog manure, which is always useful, by the way. <laughs> and, and one pair of dad's uh, boxer shorts. So we go over to this guy's house. It's dark. We unscrew his front light bulb. And we realize that he's basically oblivious to us. So we go to the car. <coughs> We take out all four valve cores, and then you put the cap on. And if you put air back in, it won't it won't uh, stay. You need a valve core. <clears throat> we stick a potato up his uh, his tailpipe and stick it deep enough, and it makes a car backfire. We pour five pounds of sugar in the gas tank. We take off both his license tags and throw them as far away as we can. And then we rub dog manure inside of his windshield and the back window. 
we and then I get a water hose and stick it in his window. Like nothing's electric, nothing's blocked. And we roll down his window, and then we roll it up so it's snug again and turn the water on. And uh, and that goes on for several hours. And then we go to his front door. He doesn't know about the car. He definitely knows about the deliveries. And we start firing eggs and water balloons at his, his uh, picture window. <coughs> he turns on the inside light to his house. He comes out. My brother, who had a, a left arm like you can't believe, hits him right <laughs> in the center of the forehead <laughs> with an egg hard enough to make the chicken yell. Right? <laughs> and uh, I'm firing water balloons at this guy. Right, We just got him all covered. He's, he's in his robe at this point. He runs out in the yard after us. We're like, ha, 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 come get us. So 45 minutes, an hour later, he shows up at our house. And he goes and he knocks on the door. And he says, you know what your sons did? And he says, well, let me query them. <laughs> <laughs> so my brother and I, Dad, we're just bursting out laughing. Like, oh, finally opens the door and he says, sir. I certainly don't know what brings you here. My sons may have thrown a balloon or two, perhaps an egg, but boys will be boys. Slams the door. (laughs) (laughs) So the guy knocks again. Dad opens the door. There's a screen door, right? We rented this house. And the guy opens the screen door and bumps against my dad. Dad, this guy goes down, you know, like a sack of potatoes. And breaks his nose, his glasses are, he says, I'm bringing the police back. He says, get the hell out of here, you son of a bitch, before I kill you. <clears throat> so an hour later, a policeman shows up with this guy. So this is where dad's charm. The policeman comes in with this guy, and dad starts into this, this man assaulted me in my home. Drags my little sister out. His son beat my daughter within an inch of her life. She may yet have to go to the hospital. He's got a little bit of a black eye and a big lip. And he said, sir, to the officer, I'm just a meek man. What would you do if you were assaulted after your daughter was brutally assaulted? And this man comes into your home and threatens you. So the policeman looks at my brother and I, my sister, and he says, I don't know what the hell's going on with you guys. But uh, unless you all want to spend a lot of time in the police station, what I'd advise is get over what get over it, and go back. Of course, at this point, the guy has no idea what had been done to his car. I'm watching his car get towed off, right? This car was towed off. And, uh, but to your point, the kids at the bus stop knew what we did, and they were extremely angry. And this girl that I was madly in love with, good old Mary, she said, you're disgusting. My mother's best friends with this guy's wife. You're just sickening. And I said, well, Mary, we did the right thing. We, it's an eye right. for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We did exactly what you should do. And she said, I really feel sorry for you. You're pitiful. And don't ever talk to me again. And a lot of the kids, and we, I didn't understand. Wait a minute. Right. All we did was get even. And so it's things like that. You gradually realize that you're way out of line with the world. Yeah, I mean, again, that resonates. It must be something about crow men. I don't know, crow fathers <laughs> of that era, because 
I, I can recall my older brothers going to a neighbor's house on my father's orders and smashing every one of their Christmas lights. And I was the lookout, and, and we weren't exactly master criminals. And so the police came, and my dad you know, was like, I'm so sorry. That is, that is unacceptable. I will deal with this. And then we had a big laugh about it. You know, I mean, uh, he literally didn't care. And so that, that gave me a kind of fearlessness that, you know, anything is, is fine. My dad will bail me out of any situation as long as it doesn't displease him. Exactly. <clears throat> and you find ways to please him. Like uh, the guy in Gallup, great peanut that sold me all the cherry bombs. Dad pretended he didn't know. But I mean, Christ, we had the entire town. (laughs) (laughs) We would wait till these Navajo drunks, and forgive me, God, they'd be passed out. We'd roll cherry bombs between their legs. I called it Navajo horseshoes, right? And so you've got these courses taking dynamite going off about six inches from, you know, the. the guy's jewels and watching him twitch and jump around. I mean, we did horrible things, and you know it got back. And uh, mm-hmm. every once in a while, he'd say, "So I understand you had an interesting weekend." Oh, yeah, <laughs> delivered my newspaper, uh, played a little baseball, and walked around town. You know, oh yeah, yeah, I heard about the walking around town part. <clears throat> he thought it was hilarious, and uh, as long as we didn't get caught, as long as we didn't embarrass him. Right, right. He didn't care if you got caught. He, could, he cared if the police thought that he encouraged you to do something bad. <clears throat> but uh, he'd, he'd even, one policeman said something to him. He said, you know, I hope the little bastard would run off and join the circus. Uh, but they didn't take him. I pray somebody will kidnap him. But the fact is, they would return him and they'd want to be paid. You know, I couldn't <laughs> get rid of this little, you know, he'd just say, I've tried to get rid of the little bastard, but no one wants him. And, uh, wow. and and he thought that was hilarious, right? Yeah. So so did I. So I, I don't want to give too much of the of the book away because it is so much more than than our listeners are even hearing now. Mm-hmm. But what I am curious about is at what point did you say um, this life experience that I've had is a memoir is something that I feel compelled to write about and to share? How how did that come to you? Well. You know, there's a couple things that happen when you grow up the way we do. <clears throat> we did. One, you've, you're ashamed. Uh, you feel guilty. But there's something else. One of the reasons I wrote the book is you feel like you deserve it. You know, I'm mm-hmm. convinced cycles happen, whether it's alcoholism or beating, white beatings, and these things, because you grow up like that, and that's the way you think things should be. <clears throat> In fact, I get a lot of letters from prisoners. And they'll say, I really loved your book, but I'm in prison because my dad did this to me and I couldn't help it. <clears throat> right. And, and I don't buy into that, by the way. But I kind of decided that there was a point in my life where I was just flat broken. And uh, I've helped teach a PhD psychology class on this very issue. So when you grow up like we did, you're, you're broken, you don't like yourself, and you don't trust any adult other than your dad because you're afraid of adults. And if you tell them something that hurts, that gets your dad in trouble, he's going to beat you worse. So you can't trust an adult. You're never going to like yourself. You feel guilty. You feel ashamed. You feel like you deserve it. So I went into adulthood, fairly lengthy years of adulthood, believing that. And I would hear people in college and afterward, you know, you know, I, I admire my dad. He's a good guy. My mom's a wonderful person. And they, what about you? And you'd either 
turn it into a joke or deflect it. And so I went through way deep into my adulthood, really believing I was a bad guy. But I was like my dad. I could put out a great facade. I had a good career. You know, I had relationships with people. And I didn't act like my dad. I I knew I was a different, didn't, I wanted to be his opposite. But inside, you're broken and you don't like yourself. And I, when I finally understood fully what had happened, and what I needed to do to undo that, to feel like an okay guy, <clears throat> to feel like I deserve better, and that I could be as good as anybody else, um, I realized that I had something to write. I had something to say. And the final piece and the piece that was hardest is forgiving them, <clears throat> because only then can you forgive yourself. This is the complexity of psychology. If you hate your life the way you're raised, you really hate yourself too. So what you have to do, and the, the hardest letters to answer I get are the forgiveness letters. How do you forgive? Mm-hmm. You know, they, they're really SOBs. You don't, they didn't deserve your forgiveness. <clears throat> but the key to that is you forgive what you can't change, and you forgive the people that did it to you because that's who they are. Mm-hmm. Once you get that out of your head, and you're not saying it's okay, you're saying, I forgive it. It's what it was. But I want different, and I want to start forgiving myself. I want to start liking myself, and I want to start being more generous with myself. I was so hard on myself. Some some days Mm -hmm. I still am. That once I got through all that, like, oh, my God, I feel like a regular guy. When I wrote the book, all my friends came. We had no idea. Mm. Sorry, we would have helped you. Like, no, you wouldn't have. 20-year-old guy or 21-year-old guy, and I had this girlfriend, and uh, this is just after my dad buried the body in West Virginia. She's like, said, well, I'll love your family. Don't worry. Like, no, you won't. Because you're, you're not mentally ill, so you won't. And, you know, I would never join a club that would have me as a member. I can't, I can't be a part of your life. When I got through the other side of that, I knew I had something to say to people. And what I had to say to them is you can rise above it. You can overcome things you don't think you can overcome. And you can start liking yourself and not believing you deserved it not being ashamed of it, not feeling guilty about it, because you didn't do it. And for all the bad decisions you may have made in your life, start making good ones. And that's what I tell prisoners to say, um, I'm going to be the guy on my deathbed that my kids don't forget. And I said, well, you didn't get anything out of my book. In fact, I'm embarrassed that you wrote me and that you claim you read it because you didn't Mm. read it. What it says is you will do the right thing. What your goal is, to get out of prison, make a thousand right decisions to undo the ones you've done wrong, and make sure on your deathbed that your boys are so sad that they lost the greatest man of their life because he mm-hmm. overcame so many things. And he didn't blame anybody. He took full accountability. He supported us. And he's a good guy. You can do that. The other sad letters I'll get is, I was raised just like you. I can't connect with the opposite sex. I'm alone. I don't like myself. My father said I was fat, stupid, ugly. And I said, well, I was all of those things by four. And uh, I have a voice for a face for radio now. I mean, what the hell? Uh, But you don't have to buy into any of this. And don't. But, But most of us do. There are not that many people, and I just consider myself lucky, to get on the other side of this, if you've had an, enough bad breaks, it's so powerful. I, I, I'm, 
I'm fighting emotion as, as I'm hearing you describe it. Um, you know, it, it is, it's so insidious, the, the inner voice that we give ourselves and, and not to make it about me, but, you know, um, in, in a much less uh, severe situation, but some of the same type of uh, experience, it, it took me into my 30s. I was a father. I was, you know, uh, raising my daughter, and I had to reluctantly admit that I saw more qualities of my father within myself than I liked. And so I went to a therapist. You know, I was encouraged to go to a therapist, and I went. And through that experience, and, and, and the therapist, basically the line that he said to me one day was, what do you know about your grandfather? And I said, well, he, by all accounts, he had passed away before I was born, but by all accounts, he was a thousand times meaner and harder than my father was. And so the therapist said to me, so Greg, it's, um, it, it would be a, a fair statement then to say that your father evolved. You know, he was better than his father had been. And, and as I heard that message in my mid-30s, I, I couldn't help but think about my father at, you know, at 29 with six children, you know, uh, and, and the mistakes that I had made and, uh, and the pressures he must have felt because I felt similar pressures with much less, with a greater education and much less responsibility. And so that allowed me to give him the opportunity to to let his better nature shine through. And, 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 um, you know, and, and he lived a, a many years after that, you know, uh, he, he only died a few years ago in his eighties. Um, and although we never talked about it, we never, he, there was no reckoning between us. Um, I, I knew that he was sorry and I knew it because he asked me to write his obituary before he died. You know, and I think, and I think he was saying like, I, I want to know what you really think of me. And, I, and he knew, knows, knew that I was in close alignment with my siblings, too, on things. And so I wrote a very honest, um, but uh, I think holistically fair um, obituary of it. And he asked me to read it to him in the hospice. And I was living in Oregon at the time. And so I read it to him over the phone. And he was quiet for a long time. And I could tell he was crying. And he... He said to me, it's too good. You made me sound too good. I, I don't deserve that. And I was able to say to him, in, in truth, I was like, you know, you know, um, no, Dad, I, I didn't lie. You know, uh, everything I said is factually accurate, and it's how your, your siblings feel about you. And, I, and I'm glad I did it, and I think that that gave him some peace. Um, but, you know, for, for people who haven't read your memoir, David, um, who've had any type of less than satisfying childhood experience? It is so powerful, uh, and it is it uh, it brought forth in me such a feeling of hopefulness, um, and and that's why I was so compelled to reach out to you, and I'm so happy that we've met. Well, I am so touched by what you said. <clears throat> more powerful than anything I've said. The other thing I'd say is, uh, God bless you for the incredible maturity you had. What we're both trying to do, what you've obviously done better than me, is break the cycle. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I've tried to tell my kids that. I don't know that I was half the father you were. In fact, I know mm -hmm. I wasn't just emotional and weird. And <clears throat> Me too. <laughs>
but um, and I didn't get help till much later. But the thing is that both my kids know is that I I did everything I could to break that cycle. That um, that as flawed as I was, you know, I love them, love them now more than anything, and that um, that it was my goal to be his opposite. Um, as far as it's interesting, our our parallels. So for me, uh, it was deliver my eulogy, right? Deliver my eulogy. Mm. And of course, uh, he was a big man in the Outer Banks where he lived, right? It's part of the story uh, happened there. And I, I gave it a different name because there's so many people that still know him and my stepmother. <clears throat> but um, I stayed up all night to write that eulogy. And um, there are a lot of people didn't know what he was really like or acted like they didn't. And I did the same thing as you. I didn't tell a lie. <clears throat> I left things out. You know, he learned to read and write at four. His dad never learned to write it for a single word. His dad signed a name with an A. <clears throat> He would pick up physics and math book and tell me, you don't read them. They tell you what's in them. Like, mm. That's not how it works. Um, he had the most intellectually curious mind of any man I ever knew. He was the most uh, intellectual about how he approached life of anybody I ever knew. If any of his kids uh, fully understood, and I think they did, they're all there, my siblings. Um, the distance he traveled from where he was to where he ended is 10 times further than any of us because we stand on those shoulders. <clears throat> and he knew I was going to do that. The one thing I did do that you could say is, I don't know if you'd say it's positive, but I tracked down his accomplice's son, which was very hard to do. He never told the truth. <clears throat> every, every prisoner, by the way, listeners, is innocent. They may have done 10 other things, but they did not commit the crime they're in prison for. No one did. Everybody's innocent. You need to know that. He was innocent, right? He didn't deserve any of this. But when I told him I tracked down his accomplice's son, and I have a government relations business, I gave his accomplice's granddaughter an internship in my company, D.C. Legislative Regulatory Services. All at once, his eyes jolted open. How'd you know about the accomplice? <clears throat> How did you know about any of this? And by the way, it's all a lie. And I said, well, I know it's a lie, but it's interesting. The prison records <clears throat> and his son have said, and I, you, you need to know this, this man died without ever getting a pardon. He died without ever getting a job better than uh, minimum wage. His wife divorced him so they could go on welfare. He never recovered from what you dragged him into. <clears throat> and then stuck him with the full tab. And I thought my dad was going to, if he had been younger, we would have had a fight to the death. He was six months from being dead, and I didn't do it because of that. I didn't know when he was going to die. But I said, before you die, you need to know that I know who you are. And I'm going to write a book. I'll wait till after your past. And I love you, but you need to understand who you are. He said, well, God damn you, who do you think you are to tell me? And I said, the son you raised and the son you put through all of this, <clears throat> along with my three siblings. So you need to know what you did, and you need to know what the impact it had on us, the accomplice, his kids. <clears throat> so he said, you get the hell out of my house. Don't ever come back. And I said, that's a very interesting thing you just said. I'm your medical guard guardian, your legal guardian. <clears throat> 
I'm the only one of the kids that talks to you. So if you feel mm. like cutting all that off, <clears throat> that's fine. I'll give you a day to think about it. He called me the next day to ever talk about any of this again. You're wrong about everything you said. You can come back. You promise never to say anything. <clears throat> and I said, I've said my piece. Uh, you, you know and I know the deal, and that's fine with me. So as he got closer and closer to death, I had a lot of time with him the last few weeks. <clears throat> and I was in the, uh, a rehab center, nursing home at this point, because they just couldn't mm-hmm. keep him in the hospital. Uh, he'd had a couple of strokes. He had a bad heart. And he was old. He'd been through all this. <clears throat> and so the last time I saw him, and it's in the book, but it's, a, it's one of those moments you'll never forget. So my wife, Patty, who's the world's greatest person, um, she knows that she's with me. And, and, and I come out of the room that he's in, I'm crying. <clears throat> she said, you go back in there and you make peace with them. I know who he is. You know who he is. <clears throat> but don't come out until you've got this right. And she's a very kind person. She's a kindergarten teacher, right? She's This isn't a butt kicking. This is a hey, husband, go resolve this. And she was right. So I walked in and I got down on one knee, stark, and I put my hand in his hand. He squeezed my hand so hard I thought it was going to break my hand. He still had every bit of that strength. And he said, You need to understand this, son. You're always my favorite. You have no idea how much I love you. Would you kiss me? I'm like, what? So I kissed him on both cheeks, like the godfather. He pulled my head down to his, and there were tears in his eyes. Just And he had been like in a semi-coma for a day or two. He said, I always loved you best. I said, mm. goodbye, Dad. And I walked out, and very teary-eyed. And, and so my wife said, well, what are your emotions on I said, you were raised by the Norman Rockwell family. You know, I, I, I know you think you get it, but you don't. <clears throat> and I said, I have a love connection I can't explain, and I have a hate connection I can't explain. I have emotions I can't explain. I'm a person that I can't explain to anybody, not even myself. <clears throat> and when the book comes out, people are going to see that. But what they're also going to see is pure honesty, right? Mm-hmm. I wasn't the world's greatest guy. In fact, you, I mean, I have people write me, You're, you belong in jail. You're the worst guy ever. That's fine. You can read that book and interpret that because I'm very honest about my own failings. <clears throat> very honest. And I say, you know, some people overcome this, some people don't. Dad knew I had to overcome his background. And he respected me intellectually because of the business side of me that had been very successful <clears throat> in his head anyway. Um, but it's extremely, extremely complex set of emotion. And the fact that you could never tell him like you could. But you did something really powerful. You did what I did, uh, maybe better. You came to peace before he died in a way that you both understood the intersection between you and he as he passed on to the next life will give you peace for the rest of your life. Yeah, And I so admire what you did, Greg. That was not easy. You know, I, I came to see him through the eyes of his grandchildren. And what I ultimately realized was that he was just scared shitless. He had no idea. He had not been prepared for life with any life lessons. 
but when in his mind his six children um, had achieved independence and were productive, you know, reasonably successful individuals, the pressure was off. And so he could fully enjoy his grandchildren, including my daughter. Mine did not. My dad was not nice. He didn't speak to me for like 15 years. Since his adulthood, my kids hated him. Uh, they have not embraced this book as a result. I mean, how in the world can you glorify this guy? Dad wanted his children to have a life every bit as hard or harder than he had it. There are several times he talked to, and my grandfather was like your grandfather, probably the meanest SOB that ever came out of Oklahoma or Texas, you know, <clears throat> beat my dad within an inch of his life with a wet rope. He was a bootlegger. He is just, and he's a roughneck in an oil well, uh, in an oil field mm. in Halliburton. And I think he roughnecked all day and fought all night, <clears throat> slept around like an alley cat. He was just not a good guy. And, but the difference between our dad is my dad wanted me to understand how hard his life is. He wanted mine to be just as hard. And he, uh, he he would say things about my son. My son took a while to figure things out, but I understood that. Now he's a doctor. He's like he's the most revered mm. guy, and I understood that it would take my son a while to figure things out. But when he figured it out, he did great. And he always worked hard. And he was always a great guy. He's a, totally admire my son, my daughter, and I have a stepson that I admire. He's like a son to me, and uh, they're they're their spouses feel the same. But dad never shared anything positive with them. Uh, he used to even tell me, uh, you shouldn't pay for your son's school. You know, he should be following this exact path to cut him off. And I said, I'd never cut him off. And second of all, he's a great guy. And third of all, he deserves all the help yet. He didn't believe that. He thought mm -hmm. I should be harder on them than he was on me. He never figured mm -hmm. this out. He didn't die in peace. I think your dad did. He did. He could live through his grandchildren. <clears throat> which let him honor his children. My dad didn't do that. And um, sad for him, uh, he lost a great deal. He had the most incredible grandchildren in the world. <clears throat> and he would have been a great grandfather a month ago when my daughter had a daughter. But my daughter and my son really don't want anything to be connected mm -hmm. to my dad because my dad it's hard to understand, I think, if you're removed from it, like you said, with your wife, and, and it is it is complex, you know, but uh, man, what a treat it is to to speak to you, David, and, and, and how deeply your book resonated with me. And I don't have any final question, but a selfish final uh, request is that, you know, I, I hope that you have more books in you, because I would certainly love to hear what happened next, um, because... Uh, it's powerful, and, and and everybody listening to this should absolutely read your book. It is, uh, it is, you know, it is grim. I think I, I wrote to you the first time I connected to you. It, it is grim, but it all it also is tender uh, and very life affirming. Well, thank you. Even coming up with the title, "The Pale Face Lie," right? We, <clears throat> I don't want to give anything away to the reader. Yeah. But we were full blooded Cherokees, and that's what we were always told. <clears throat> and the, there's so many myths that came out of this. Um, and I'll just say finally how much I've loved being with you and Tim, Greg. Thank you. We share a last name, but you're more prestigious because you kept the E, of course. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, only only really sophisticated people added the E. We just were based. 
<laughs> but uh, the the thing is, I always knew, never thought of myself as very amazing, and I still don't. But I knew I had an amazing story, and my only goal was to be good enough to get that story out. Mm-hmm. Did I have the skill to write what happened and capture the complexity and the insanity? the fun, the sadness, all of it. <clears throat> I did my best. And hearing this conversation with you two really makes me feel great. Um, maybe someday I get to sit in front of you again, but I've, it's been my pleasure. I'd love it. Thank, my you, pleasure. To it. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, this was, this was, I really enjoyed this, both the book and the conversation. Too. Thanks. Thank you, David. So young, you never told me how everything went wrong. The world is so. Over-